Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshesheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Hey friends, welcome back to Genuine Life Recovery. I'm so excited that you are here and I am joined by my new friend, Teresa Nickel. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, it's my pleasure. Um, so Teresa is an inspirational speaker. She's an entrepreneur. She's the author of a book called The Girl in Your Wallet. Uh, it's an amazing book too. Thank you for sending it to me. I read it and I was just blown away and I love your honesty and the fact that you uh, had the bravery to share your story. Teresa's also an addiction, trauma survivor, overcomer, and she has a heart for hurting women. And we have a, a mutual friend, um, Scott and Kathy Peters connected us uh, as well. So you are in Idaho, right? I am, we're about 20 miles outside of Boise. Wow, that's cool. And you all, so you all go to the same church, right? We do, we do. We do a lot of things together. Really enjoy them. So we met Scott and pa uh, Scott and Kathy in church where I met my husband in the singles group in Sacramento. And then Scott and Kathy met in church as well, the same church, the same singles group. And I think they had met right before my husband and I met. So how fun is that? Teresa, take us back just a little bit. You know, I want to hear your whole story, um, addiction, recovery, kind of what happened, what did God do, and where are you now? Um, but if you don't mind my asking, how long have you been sober? Uh, actually, two days ago, I celebrated my 31st year of continuous sobriety. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. I have been clean and sober far longer than I had been in, in addiction. Wow. 31 years ago, I got on a Greyhound bus from Spokane, legally blind, and landed in Sundown M Ranch Treatment Center in, outside Yakima. You are a miracle. You know, I think uh, so many of us are. Uh, yes. God, God doesn't call us all to bear our souls in writing and on a stage, but he has asked me to do that. And yeah. so, yeah, you use the word brave, and, and I, I do hear that a little bit, but honestly, maybe in the beginning I was. Yeah. What I am now is free. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, I've got, I think, 18 years. My husband's got 21. And making that first call for help was the hardest. Like, that was the hardest thing I think I've ever done, you know. And I've since lost, you know, my brother to his addiction and, and so many things that have gone on. But that right there, I think, was one of the hardest, you know. So kind of take us back to the beginning a little bit um, and just share how it all started. Well, I grew up in Spokane to a very uh, dysfunctional young couple who already had two sons. And so I was the youngest, the only girl. And my uh, father was an alcoholic of the most violent kind. Um, those are the memories I have of him. It was not uncommon for me to turn that last corner coming home from school and he would be beating my mom on the front lawn. Um, these were the days that, uh, you know, people closed their curtains. They didn't really call the police, you know, right. uh, that kind of thing. My dad, uh, although he didn't have a motorcycle of his own, <clears throat> excuse me, his people were bikers. They were all over the backyard. Um, most of the time it was a party. My mother did not indulge in, um, alcohol and drugs with everyone else, but she, she craved attention. She craved attention. She wanted to be the life of the party. She was very um, critical to us kids. Uh, I don't know. I've come to peace with it now, but she was very critical. She was sarcastic, inconsistent. Incon yeah. we, we lived in a constant state of anxiety. We had no idea from one day to the next or minute sometimes yeah. who, was, who was coming at us. Was she kind? Was she not? Was she mad? Was, we didn't know. Yeah. just didn't know. So a constant state of anxiety. 
And so that kind of puts you in a position as your, you know, your brain's developing while these things are going on, right? And then as you get older, it's just kind of this realization that the world's not really safe, right? I mean, that would be how it would feel, right? Well, yeah, it wasn't safe, but we were also outcasts. I'll speak for myself. I was an outcast because our parents didn't want... They didn't want us playing with the kids in the neighborhood because there was illegal things going on at our house and they didn't want to witness to that. And um, social mannerisms, uh, all, you know, it just wasn't something we learned. So you isolate, I isolated. I kept to myself, I never fully understood uh, what the acceptable behavior was. So I was in uh, constant observation trying to mimic what other people were doing, not understanding why they were doing it or any of that. So it's just like instability, complete instability, yeah. And then you're kind of not really told who you are. You don't really probably understand who you are. Trying to develop that sense of identity is so challenging. And it sounds like from reading quite a bit of your book, there was a lot of just right? Kids are to be seen and not heard. You know, don't feel that way. Stop feeling that way. I know one of the messages I got and my parents didn't mean to, it was just don't feel that way so you stop feeling and when you when you stop feeling you kind of don't really know who you are you know and then and then you grow up trying to figure that out your identity is lost and that it can be such a natural way to turn to addiction because you're kind of getting like like you said just sort of looking at clues to figure out who you are and what to do I would say that I was probably in my 30s before I had a sense of identity I didn't know who I was. I um, I didn't have any idea. All I knew was I was bad. At every turn, whatever it was, I was bad. And if we fast forward just a little bit into my early teen years, I decided if they were gonna call me bad, I was just gonna go for it because I had tried everything I could possibly think of to be acceptable. And it just what it just wouldn't work. So I snapped and I went I just went full on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so just, you don't have to go the details, very dysfunctional. It sounds like very abusive childhood, you know, and all these things, you know, if you're listening, all these things, you know, they're going on for, for you and for so many kids as the dopamine system, the brain, like everything's developing. So we, we kind of learn this track of you know, when we get older, like we learn these kind of crazy coping skills, right? You didn't learn anything different. So I always, you know, when I see this and I see someone struggling, you know, that turns to addiction because of something like that, I always think, well, that's a pretty natural reaction. You know, I mean, you're, we're trying to fix something, right? We're, we're trying to fix what's broken, whether it's pain, whether it's chemical imbalance, whatever it is. Uh, and we just don't know how to do it, you know. So you talk about turning to addiction and gaming the system and this vict- victimology concept that even though you were really a victim, sometimes we can use that and all those sorts of things. They're such a natural, I think, reaction to abuse and trauma, you know. I would say the primary thing for me was numbing. Once I found out that I could numb with substances, It didn't much matter what the substance was. I had my favorites, but I'd have took whatever there was. It's like I was primarily, when it was alcohol, a beer drinker. Does that mean I wouldn't drink anything else? Not a chance. I would have drank whatever was available because it just needed to stop that pain. And so numbing was the primary driver for me. And then, of course, you know, you get to a point where the craving takes over and, and all of that, the obsession. All of it just became a way of life. I could not imagine any other way to live until it got, until it got um, to a point that I couldn't continue that way. God got a hold of me. The pain was greater than the gain, or you know, however they say it. Okay, so we we got kind of a picture of the childhood. Kind of talk about a little bit about the addictive stage and what that was like, and and what was happening up until the point where you finally just were like whatever the moment was where you're like, something's got to change. Well, it was the progression. I had married at 17, had a child, uh, continued to use um, pot, acid, cocaine, crack, meth, 
Um, it just progressed. I needed more and more all the time. My tolerance was rising. By the time I was 26 years old, I no longer had custody of my child, was legally blind and was living in a car. It still wasn't bad enough. I was still uh, just trying to figure out how to continue on in that lifestyle. But then I, ha I was arrested with my um, boyfriend at the time. And I thought I would talk my way out of jail and talk my way out of everything like I always had. And that was not the that was not the case, and I um, had been charged with a felony, uh, possession with content with intent to deliver, and I had, you know, jailhouse uh, legal advice. This gal had suggested that I go to treatment, tell the judge to go that I'd go to treatment. I can get out of UAs. I needed to get out of your analysis because I was had no intention of stopping. Mm -hmm. I needed it like air. I just literally did not consider a life without it. And so I went to treatment and they offered me hope for the very first time. And I grabbed hold of it. I grabbed hold of it. And I was scared and I was scared to death. I was legally blind. I, had, I was homeless. I had nothing else, but my counselor was a recovering alcoholic. And she understood me like no one I had ever met before. She spoke wow. to me in a way that I could, I could receive. And that was the beginning of the change. That was turning point number one. I finished inpatient treatment, had to go back to jail to complete my suspended sentence, then went to outpatient treatment and found a uh, AA sponsor in Spokane. Wow. That woman would save my life. God would use that woman to save my life. And that's where the turning point happens. I, um, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior with my AA sponsor. And as you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is not an, a Christian program, but I believe God found a willing heart in me and sent a guy yeah. exactly where I was. Wow. I love AA. I mean, yeah, I got sober through AA as well because I, I was a new Christian and I thought I needed to kind of get cleaned up before I went into church. So that's what I did. Oh, you and me both. That was where the good people went. I wasn't good. So I had to get good so I could go in. Was there something that happened that you remember? I mean, there's probably so many things when we're in recovery, but was there something initially your sponsor did or said, or that somebody said in the beginning stages that really resonated with you? I think the biggest thing that was that she allowed me to get to know her and trust her before she tried to go too deep. Uh -huh. um, we studied the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as if it were a textbook. I had homework with fill in the blanks that I had to go find the blank. We counted how many times the world of the word control, lack of control or attempted control were in um, Bill's story just um, to try and analyze that he had, got, he had come at this thing from every different direction. And during that time, I learned to trust her. And you know, I had trust issues. <laughs> I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust anybody. And so she allowed that to develop and establish before we went deeper. Someone, well, I was hostile. Like I, had a, they, yeah. I had a foul mouth. I was angry, angry, angry. I mean, I didn't yeah. know how to have a, a conversation. I would, I would wound you with words. I was, um, and she, she was just an incredible woman. Well, you know, and the reality is when you're invalidated all your life or insulted, you're, you feel trapped, right? You, you talked a lot about just, being a victim versus victimology or not believing that you had any choices. I think as women, we really, some of us can really relate to that, particularly when it comes to addiction where, and I heard a psychologist say this one time, he's like, most of us go through life and we, we get that we have choices, but for some people, they actually do not believe that they have choices. Um, and, and again, when you were so young and your little brain's developing, you're, you're, you know, you grow up now after this trauma and you feel trapped and that causes all kinds of anger and rage. And I know for me, I had that, I didn't know it was, where it was coming from. I felt more powerless over the rage than the addiction because I had no idea that I felt trapped. 
Because I didn't know another way and you didn't know another way. Absolutely. And for me, it was also when you um, were referring to the victim mentality is that I didn't believe I could make my own choices because I had never done it before. I latched on to other people and there was a there was something in it for me. So they would they would make the choices and that left me the the ability to blame them when it didn't work out. I didn't have to take responsibility for the outcome. And so that kept me trapped because now I was at the mercy of the choices of this this other person and it took me many places I didn't want to go but I went out of fear of not being able to make my own decisions it sounds very simplistic and juvenile but it is absolutely true that was the way that I looked at it and I was a victim I most certainly was a victim but it would be years before I understood that I was choosing situations that increased my risk of being victimized because I chose people that were familiar, that were that resembled the ones I had known. I loved my family of origin. I loved those bikers in the backyard. I loved all these people because they were my first people. But I also learned that that's how you treat others. That's acceptable, that's normal. And so I sought out the very people that would behave that way. And then it locked me into this cycle. So one of the most commented um, phrases, I guess you would say, there's a chapter title, uh, am I a victim or a volunteer? Well, and it becomes so natural and normal as a reaction, particularly if there was trauma in the past. You know, they've taken like PTSD victims and trauma people out on like nature excursions or things like that to to try to um, show them like, hey, if you're trapped, you can get out and stuff. And a lot of times, like they would be in the rapids or doing things and they wouldn't respond. They They would sit motionless. They didn't understand, you know, they had to be taught to respond. And so it is it is kind of a, a natural reaction to trauma to where you're just, you're <gasps> sort of, my, my mom's like that. She's very reactionary, like <gasps> the world just happens. <laughs> you know, things just happen. And, um, you know, I know I, I suffered that kind of victim mentality is what I call it. I mean, you know, for a while where, and it's easy to, to go back there. You know, you have to really, like to me, an emotional relapse, I call it, is when I can't get out of bed because I'm in self-pity. Like, that's that's the emotional relapse, you know what I mean? Because, you know, it, it, you do it. It's somebody else's fault. We let other people make choices, and I think it is it is a natural response to what happened, and it takes a lot of work to come out of that. When did you really see that? Well, there were, there were stages. Of course, there were stages. This is, yeah. all gets peeled back over time. But I, I also began to notice, I, I either noticed or it was pointed out to me, I was hanging out with some very healthy people at that point. And so you, you, know, you start getting some feedback, is that I had no trouble. I was still very direct, very um, street hardened. And I could stand up to anybody, I didn't care until I cared about you. Yeah. Once I cared about you, doormat absolute just lay down whatever you want to do walk all over me and it was this this thing that happened and and I needed that outside person so anybody listening you got to get yourself some people you need a tribe that has permission to speak truth into your life but I I did once I cared about you I couldn't stand up to you anymore and that was when I learned that, that was a huge step, a huge step. So I needed to stop fighting the world at large because I was still, and then learned how to stand up to people I cared about in a loving way. And that didn't come easy, but it was worth it. It is hard when you've never had any boundaries. And then when you do care about someone, you feel like if I stand up, I'll lose everything. It's a weird feeling. It almost feels like you'll be crushed or annihilated into, I I can't explain it to anyone else, but I know that feeling 
where you just feel like I'll cease to exist if I have to deal with conflict. Yeah. You know? And then I also, you know, always hanging out there in the back of my mind is that if this relationship didn't work, if this didn't work out, I would end up back in my mother's basement. I had, it was my, right, because there was no, there was no middle. I had to go all the way back to my worst scenario. That's what, if this didn't work kind of thing. I didn't understand that if it didn't work, there were other, there were other things to do than the worst thing ever. You know, I had that all or nothing, all or nothing mindset for sure. Wow. So, Talk to me about kind of the the recovery stage, the moment of clarity, maybe what finally worked, um, sort of the the program, or perhaps anything you really want to say, maybe a, a, a step that was really instrumental to you, something God did or said, you know, something like that through the recovery process. Because it sounds, as I read your book, you became very successful in the recovery process, but then still had a lot of stuff to work through, right? Of course, it's a lifelong journey, but. Well, I became early in sobriety. I dove in, 100% dove in because I wasn't using, had never been clean, honestly, in in an adult life. I started using at 12 and, um, and I was thriving, but we're getting back to that whole volunteer uh, volunteer to be a victim, I, I did not release the relationship with my then boyfriend, my co-defendant, who was in the medium security prison in, in um, Washington State. And I continued that relationship and would go on to marry him while he was still in prison, uh-huh. all the while believing he was working a program too. And there was no evidence of that. I right. just believed it because I wanted to. And I, um, I was, I, I backslid. Now I didn't use, but I did backslide emotionally, uh, my mental health, all of those things. So this was not a, a step-by-step process. It was definitely, you know, some steps forward, some steps back. Um, I did the work on my, my fourth and fifth step, grueling work. Um, made a, a list of all peoples we had harmed, well, I'm into the eighth or ninth step there, but yeah. made, um, made a list of, of offenses I had done. And my sponsor was just so consistent with me and I would write these things out and I would say, yeah, but they did. And if they hadn't, I wouldn't have had to. And I had these long lists of whatever. Right. And she'd just sit there smoking her cigarette and she'd say, Teresa, what was your choice? Well, I didn't have any choices. Really? None? You know, and that's where I got humbled. And I began to understand. I started to see the world more in a three-dimensional way. Started to see she was just a very loving, loving woman. But nonetheless, um, you know, we'll get into career in a minute. But I, I did work the program with Alcoholics Anonymous to the best of my ability, all the while having this dysfunctional thing going on on the other side of me. But I, uh, as my income grew, which was about to happen, I invested in my mental health. Uh-huh. I sat under yeah. the direct teaching of doctors Henry Cloud and John Townsend. Four times, <laughs> week-long <laughs> wow. intensives. I had no idea I had abandonment issues. I had no idea. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that I was leaving people before they left me. I didn't, there were so many things that I didn't know the driver, getting what is driving that behavior. I couldn't stop it until I could identify it. And so that's a lot of what you read in the book is taking what I learned breaking it down and and it's a repeatable process yeah well and i like to say you don't know what's wrong until you know what's right like the i i read the book safe people as well i love dr henry cloud and you know you can't see what's wrong in those relationships you can't see the forest for the trees until you're in a healthy one and then you go 
oh my gosh, and then you can spot the dysfunction, like from a mile away. It takes time, though. It takes a lot of time. I had a, a therapist say to me one time, um, I don't know, was combative about something, which wasn't unusual. <laughs> and she said to me, how old are you right now? <laughs> okay. I was fighting from my early teen years. I was battling a ghost that I had never dealt with an issue. And these are the kinds of things that were just eye-opening, just, just eye-opening to me. And the thing is too, is that and I, I'm guessing that many people in addiction recovery is that once you get a little, you want a whole lot more. You want a whole lot more. It's like, okay, let's get rid of some more stuff. <laughs> I don't like this particular thing about me, but I can't see why it's happening, you know? And let's find out. There are so many things that I related to in your book. Completely off subject, you were talking about music. I don't know anyone. I, my favorite, well, I was a DJ for 30 years. I, st I still am. But um, before I found the Lord, my favorite band was Dio. And so... When you said Ronnie James Dio, I I about died. I, I about cried died. when Ronnie James Dio died. What other chick like gets Dio? Like that was so cool, you know. <laughs> it, you know, I just well, I became so involved because I had that little FM radio, you know, and I was just so involved in the lives of these people that were um, living uh, exciting lives, and I just loved music. I still love metal. I just do, yeah. you know, um, it was in my blood from an early age. I, yeah, I mean, I could say that music saved my life. I came out singing. It was something that, and then I, I started radio in when I was like 19 years old. Maybe nobody saw me or heard me, but on the radio they did. <laughs> like it was this codependent relating pattern. I can't really talk to you, but I, you know, it was that kind of a thing. But it really did. I mean, it was it was a place to go, a place to dream. And I think it does. I think we need that, you know. I was the, the lost child, you know. And, and in my career, I was doing things I had no idea how to do. But I just was so afraid of failure that I was willing to do and put myself in all kinds of situations. And I would listen to Metallica thump on the way to sales meetings. And it would give me the courage to walk in and pretend I knew what I was doing, you know, but that, that, but it was music. It was the old friend. It was, yeah. it gave me the courage that I needed. It sounded like you were very successful. You know, I mean, for me, like I had an anxiety disorder that I was treating with, with the booze and stuff, but I always think sometimes those things can help you because if you don't know what you're doing, you just do it. And if you're afraid of everything, you just do everything. Some people don't do anything or you just do everything. So you, you have no real scale of fear. <laughs> so in a way, fear can make you fear less, right? And you're just doing it, right? And that's what sounds like you were doing. And yeah, and also to learn that embarrassment will not kill you. It literally won't. I thought I would die a couple of times, more than a couple, but it just uh -huh. won't. And, you know, I can go back and I can see, you know, my mother's criticism. She was always like, you're embarrassing me. Knock it off. First husband, knock it off. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing. You know, it was like this common theme. And I have been out there in the world doing things that are just silly and, you know, and it doesn't kill you. Yeah. It, it just doesn't kill you. And honestly, I have made some wonderful connections with people for my, my willingness to go out and actually try things and know I don't know how to do it. And they're like, oh, man, can I go? I've never done it either. You know, it's just, uh, it, but it was crippling there for a while. Who doesn't embarrass themselves? Tell me that. But yeah. I want to live my life. And in order to do that, I have to do things I don't know how to do yet. So the voices, the tapes, the rewiring, um, uh, stopping the, the images of your worst experiences from replaying in your mind, you know, that, that, that cripple things. You know, I get excited about doing something. And, and you know, for example, I would be uh, excited about having done well at work. Um, and I'd be really, you know, and then I would remember giving up custody of my son. Pooh, high, low, high, low, you know, all of those kinds of things and learning 
uh, with help, lots of help, how to, how to evaluate those situations and hold them up to the truth of God's word. You know, they talk about the committee and I think it's, it is our flesh talking, but I think it's also Satan. I think it's also the enemy. You know, he's the committee too. He's going to whisper and, you know, so I've always thought that when people go, oh, the committee's going, I, you know, and I think, yeah, the, no, the enemies are going. You know what I mean? Yeah. I heard Beth Moore, I, I believe it was Beth Moore one time say that uh, yeah. the enemy doesn't have to be that creative. Because we yeah. fall for the same thing over and over again. And you had a powerful experience with Joyce Meyer, as I did too. So I loved that. There were so many things. You know, I remember I first got saved and I was still drinking alcoholically and I read Battlefield of the Mind and that was really um, instrumental. It was a long time ago and I didn't understand that my thoughts, I could change how I think. That was very instrumental for me. And it sounds like you found her as well, and was she was instrumental in your life too. I, she's a rock star. I love her. I read it three times because I couldn't hold on to it. I had to repeat and repeat and repeat. But I was um, unemployed, had quit one job, started another job, uh, lost my vision again, legally blind, 2200 vision, and I'm stuck at home. I have no job. I have no insurance. I need eye surgery. I, it was the worst one of the worst times. And I um, turned on the television with the remote control on memory. I, you know where the you know where the buttons are. And I saw her on the I saw a silhouette of her on the television yeah. and she said, What are you speaking over your life? Are you talking about the problem? Are you talking about God's sufficiency? And the message was me and my big mouth. The power or she said that I forget the subtitle is, Oh, the answer is right under your nose lining our words up with what the word of God says. Wow. And I was in, I was in. So I would, um, I would watch it live at eight o'clock every morning and my husband would set the VCR to record it. And then I would go back um, afterwards and pause on the scriptures because I had no idea, I'd never opened a Bible before, I'm 20, 30 years old, 29, 30 years yeah. old. And, uh, and I would take my big magnifying glass and I would try and find the buzz in the table of contents. And I was looking up those verses and whatever, and it started making sense. It started making sense to me. And so she was, she was very instrumental in my life. Wow. Mm -hmm. I love that, that you, that you had ex an experience like that too. Oh, absolutely. I love her. I just absolutely, you know, people can say what they want, you know, the, you hear this and that, you know, oh, she does this or prosperity that. And like, I have never heard one thing even remotely prosperity. So I don't know what people are talking about when they say that. Because I hear things like, well, if you overeat, you got to undereat to lose weight. You know, if you overspend, you got to underspend. You know, I mean, I just, I've never heard anything that's not just, doesn't just knock you over on your face. So... <laughs> Fun story, I was in the men's maximum security here in southern Idaho, um, giving out cookies at Christmas last year. And um, we're, we're, we had to go through tunnels and all these things to get to this uh, high maximum security prison. And, and we were in the library. Through the glass, I could see the library, and they had an entire section of Joyce Meyer books. Oh. They had, she, she donates. She, she's got a big prison ministry, and it was wonderful to see all those books. I love that. I love that. That's so cool. God is so good. Talk to me about the powerlessness paradox. I always think this is so interesting and I'm, I'm curious how it works in your life. You know, we talk about step one is admitted we were powerless over our addictions that our life had become unmanageable or power, you know, and I always have my own version. I like to say admitted we were powerless over sin, that our lives had become unmanageable, right? Because now we've all got something you know, but it's th the most interesting thing for people who maybe feel like they don't have any power where you could say, oh yeah, I'm powerless. I'm powerless over everything. But then the paradox is that when we submit and yield to the Holy Spirit, now he comes in and suddenly we do have power. <laughs> it's the most interesting thing. And I'm just wondering how you kind of worked through all of that. Well, as you describe it, I'm thinking about um, 
when I think I have the power to change something, that's a whole different feeling, uh, body posture, belief, drive. I get my shoulders back, my elbows out. Um, I think I can, I can do something. But when the Holy Spirit, when you yield, when I yield to the Holy Spirit, there's a peace that comes with it where I simply walk through whatever it is. And I want to, I want to push up my sleeves and tackle it and make it happen and force my way. That's, that's my way. That's, that's what I want to do. It's not his way. And it's also, I don't think always the best way to witness to those around you who know you're a believer to power through struggle, make it happen. Cause I mean, I can be determined when I'm determined, I can plow right over the top to get, you know, to get the, accomplish the goal. That's not the Holy Spirit. People are watching. And yeah. when we don't learn to yield to his, what, what's the witness? And I don't know what your drive is or, or what your style is, but I get a to-do list and I can knock that thing out. We're going to get her done. And it's just like really, my husband says, I'm singularly focused. <laughs> well, well, when I'm singularly focused, I can't really see who's over here. And who might need a little kindness or who might need a little something. And maybe the reason I'm there isn't about me at all. You know, it's not always about me. There's a big lesson. We could do a whole show on that. <laughs> it's not about me. <laughs> you know, so it's about, it's about helping others, about introducing them to maybe a Jesus that they've never met. And you're the only example that they've ever seen or, you know, a gentle one. So... When I, when I try to take power of everything, then I, I take away my witness in a lot of yeah. cases. There was a part in your book that spoke to me a lot when you had just gotten sober and you were on the floor, which is common. <laughs> we're on the floor in a fetal position and your sponsor said, this is your life on self-will. And that's just so perfect to everything because that's the the natural man in our we had a pastor just talk about the difference between a spiritual man and the natural man a spiritual woman and a natural woman and when we're running our own show that's what happens and when you're like like us right and you get to come to that point where you're on the fetal position in the floor and realize god i can't do anything without you we're kind of lucky in a way because a lot of people don't ever get to that point you know, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it was complete surrender. The evidence was clear. We had just spent months working through uh, the fourth and fifth step. And I read, I read all of those items in detail aloud to her. I was in, we were in her dark apartment smoking. It was all full of smoke. That's the one thing I remember. It was just so full, so cloudy, full of smoke. Yeah. And I was completely spent. It was it. The evidence was undeniable that my best decisions had led me to absolute devastation. And it really was a gift. It was a gift. And you're right, many people I don't think get that opportunity. And while we like to, you know, think that that's the worst that could happen, sometimes the, the worst day of your life and the best day of your life were the same day. And that was one of the best days of my life. You know, I cried all afternoon. I wandered home in a daze. I, um, she had told me not to sign any legal documents or do anything while I was in this, this condition. Wise, wise advice. But it was the absolute turning point. And I accepted Jesus right there on the floor of her apartment. That's the best you can do, Teresa, without God in your life. Would you like to accept him now? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes, wow. I would. That's amazing. Let's go a different way. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I accepted the Lord, but I, I quit. I continued to drink for another five years. I was playing praise and worship songs. I worked for a station called The Fish. That's how it through I met Kathy and them. And so I'm like getting drunk, blacking out every night after I'm playing praise and worship music. And then I, I've told this story. I, I asked God, I said, if, if he would strike me sober, I'd throw away all my heavy metal CDs. 
So I did. I threw them all away, all the D.O., and then I was drunk the next night, and that was kind of my powerlessness story. I'm like, God, I thought we had a deal. Strike me sober. Throw away all my music, and then you're going to strike me. Like, isn't this how it works? I do for you, you do. So the opposite of smote, right? You want to get smote, you wanted to get sober, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I had to do the hard work of calling a sponsor and going to those meetings. He wasn't just going to magic wand me. Darn it. Did you have those moments too? Okay, God, we'll just do this. You and I. I don't know that I ever really bargained, um, but I understood because of the seriousness of that in that um, day of surrender in my sponsor's apartment, I believe that I understood that it, I was going to have to do the hard things. Yeah. I understood. And then I also understood that the hard things were worth it. And so I actually, when I, when I speak, I tell the audience early on that we're going to talk about hard things. So I want you to know I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing, you see a very healthy woman right here, but we're going to have to talk about that to get here. And so I like to warn them a little bit that we do talk about hard things, but I think I got that. I don't think I made any bargains with God. I, not that I didn't complain to him plenty. Why didn't you, <laughs> you know, right, right. why won't you let me quit? Uh, those kinds of things. I had someone say, you did not shout at God. Well, I did. I'm being honest. I, I actually did shout, shout at him. Oh yeah. You know, uh, and honestly, I, I, I don't think he thought any less of me. I was just expressing what he already knew was there. You know, getting it out. But no, I didn't bargain too much. And I sure didn't throw my CDs away. <laughs> I always tell people, you know, it's, it's okay to yell at God. He's used to it. He's okay. At least you're talking to him. I remember moving to Sacramento and yelling at God. God, I don't know where I am. You find me a place. And, and every time I yelled at him like that, he did it. He gave me, like, he knew I was just a child, like, throwing a little fit. And he totally came through and gave me what I want, even though I th threw a fit. Like, I mean, now that I'm mature, not right, you know, like, I don't do that anymore. But it was so sweet when I think back, because he could have just, you know, spanked me, but he didn't. So you did uh, prison time. What was that like? And kind of transition that, because now you're going into helping women in prison. And that gives you a unique ability since you've been on the inside. Well, I avoided prison. I was in the county jail like it had a revolving door. I just could not stay out of there because they wanted me to, to clean up. And I, was, yeah. I refused to do that because I, I just didn't believe it was an option. But uh, there was a moment in time where I had been, I was about to be rearrested by the bail bondsman and I knew it. And I has, was walking into his office and I went back to my car and I pulled the dope out of my bra and put it in the, the truck. And that moment kept me out of prison. I would have been uh, in violation. But um, so no, multiple times. I, I can remember getting out of jail more times than I can remember going in. But I, um, I, do, I did minister in Washington State. Honestly, <laughs> I knew God was asking me to write a book and I didn't want to. I gave him all the reasons why, right? I'm a 10th grade dropout. I never learned to type. I don't know how to, how to write a book. Don't you read books? What do you want? This is silly, right? But yeah. it, the, the, it persisted. It just absolutely persisted. And so I offered him a consolation prize. <laughs> I said, I'll go into the prisons and I'll minister to the women there. And then that should satisfy you, right? And I went in with prison fellowship and what I understood was that these were women in need of hope. And I had some. Yeah. And that was when they weren't nameless and faceless anymore. And I understood that I had something to offer them. And I also understood that on my Wednesday afternoon for an hour and a half with the leadership with, as a team, I would never have the ability to dig into some of these things in a way to unravel with them. I understood that the written word could go further than I ever could. And that in light of the health problems I was having at the time, uh, it would outlive me. 
And so that those ladies in that room, seeing their faces and hearing their stories was the catalyst to actually sit down and write a book. I had no idea how to do. So yeah, so I'm not currently in the prisons here, of course, COVID and all the things and yeah. all the stuff that's changed. Um, and, but I am speaking at a local jail in Southern Idaho um, in the next couple of weeks. So, but I'm open. That is fantastic. So you kind of took us through your childhood, the addiction years, sobriety, and what, what is life like now? 30 some years sober later. <laughs> well, the part we didn't talk about too much was the career, which, yeah. um, you know, I started out working for a local bakery for five bucks an hour, minimum wage, and I worked my way up in the company and then um, in, in into a general manager position. And um, 11 years in, he sold it to me on a payment plan. Uh-huh. No idea about my criminal background, no idea about any of it. I lived in a constant state of trying to be honest as the program uh, requires that we live an honest life and not full disclosure, right? Because right. I couldn't tell anybody my whole story. Um, but I would go on to, um, to help grow that company into a multi-million dollar corporation. And that's the part where I tell you that if, when I started having a little more income, I started investing in some mental health. Um, I didn't know I was still carrying this stuff. I just didn't know at all. So that, uh, that was the, um, the career, the career part. I, I sold the company due to health reasons, uh, which we kind of t- discussed a little bit at the beginning. But what's it like now? I am free. I am not. It's interesting when people say to me, uh, can I ask you a personal question? I'm like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> what else is there that I haven't already said? And of course, there are things that they don't land in the book. But um, yeah. yes, yes, you can ans- ask me a personal question because what that tells me is is that you have something you want to talk about and you consider me a safe place. Mm-hmm. And I am honored to be your safe place. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't realize there were surprises when you write a book that's a tell-all about yourself. I, I didn't know that women would do that. They would tell me their secrets. I, I didn't know that. I know that now. I learned that very quickly. I didn't know that um, professional women would approach me. I didn't know. I wrote this book for women in prison, but yeah. they particularly related to the chapter on it looked good on paper uh, in their careers and the anxiety and the busy brain and the techniques that I learned to not only calm that down, but to isolate and to do those kinds of, of techniques on that. I didn't expect to hear, uh, from the inmate who stole my book from the prison. She risked an infraction on the way out to steal my book from the library. That just blows my mind. You know, so I didn't, there's, there's things, I didn't expect to hear from men at all. One guy sent me a message that said, thank you for showing me the other side of that dysfunctional relationship. I was that guy. I was that guy you had to get away from. And I sat on that for a day or two. I thought, God, I don't know how to respond to that. And then finally I just said, don't be that guy anymore. You know, but I didn't know that those things would happen. And so God knew. So all the time I was kicking, screaming, fighting, arguing, all of those things, I can see now that he has used this book to help people. So I recently donated it in an electronic version to an educational system for the corrections um, across okay. the United States. So I, the, the, the residents, inmates, um, if they, they buy these e-readers that are available, and I think they're pretty cheap. Um, um, it's in 300 prisons and jails across the United States. And nice. they have access to it for free if they buy this electronic device. So uh-huh. there's just cool things that I couldn't have seen. I just could not have yeah. seen. God always knew. I didn't know. So all my little, I don't want to, (laughs) I don't want to, you know, all my little whimpering and whining and all of that just seems so irrelevant now. Well, praise the Lord. 
That is amazing. And it sounds like you have some contact with your family, but with, with good boundaries. Um, I always like to talk a little bit about that too, just navigating the waters, the boundaries, the safe people. You know, a lot of times we have to move out of that dynamic <clears throat> initially when we get sober until we're strong enough to, to move back in. Did you find that was the case for you? Um, yes and no. Um, I, I, as you know, healed that relationship with my mother. Yeah. Uh, that was my lifelong grudge, um, my big one. And so she passed last fall. And oh, wow. it is just a wonderful thing to know that we were friends and we had, you know, and my forgiveness of her and my healing with that relationship didn't require her participation at all. Yeah. Because her, her, her defenses were locked solid. She, she didn't have the ability to go deep, to go where I was going. But I could still forgive her yeah. and make peace with, with her without her permission or participation. And so that's a beautiful thing. I have a relationship with my son today, which is wonderful. I just saw him two weeks ago, and he's doing well. I'm so proud of him. He's navigating life. He uh, owns the business that he has worked for since he was 19 years old. And so that, I'm just very, very proud of him. Now my siblings, that's kind of another story. Um, They've responded to our upbringing in two very, very different ways, both, uh, in my view, pretty unhealthy. And so I've limited. And that is another case of a a boundary. I can love them from here. But to put myself in that in that situation and I, you, I'm sure you read this in the book is that it took me a long time to understand that when I was with my family I would snap back into that well-established role I became a mere female powerless and the people pleaser and I would leave town after a visit and going who are you what just happened there so that was a struggle to um, to understand that and to recognize that I needed small doses. And I needed to also uh, prayerfully go in and prayerfully go out and not take that home with me. And so that has been a struggle, but nonetheless, I've learned how to coexist. And that's super important because we, you know, I mean, I have like an MS and addiction counseling and it's very, family is so important, family this and family that. And while that's true because they are instrumental in our recovery, they're also instrumental in triggers and nobody can trigger you like your family. (laughs) I heard someone say something recently that says your family knows how to push your buttons because they helped install them. Exactly. And, and when we talk about triggers, a trigger is something that happens that pain, it, it's so painful. It takes you to back to the time it happened to where you feel like you're two again. You're, you're, you're right back there in that same pain, writhing on the floor. And a lot of times we have those triggers and we don't even know that we're having it until we figure all that out. And so that's why I say, you know, yeah, family is important, but sometimes you have to step away, get healthy, once you're strong enough, you can go back in. But like you said, you got to have a plan. You got to have an exit strategy, a lot of different things like that, you know, uh, and, and you have to have support. It's just like if you're trying to stay sober and you have to go to a company party, most people don't think about it. It's like, what's your plan? What are you going to do? Who are you going to call? How, you know, we don't have we don't have plans for some of the scariest times in life. You know, it's like if you were going to a job interview, you'd have a plan, right? You would practice. <laughs> You would practice. You would do all of that. But it is 100% true. And I had great sponsors. I've had two sponsors. but And they, they coached me on these kinds yeah. of things. But the flip side is is that recognizing that um, you can love somebody you just disagree with. Because I, uh, I don't behave in the well-established role now. And so that can rub some folks wrong. Yeah. And to just know that be grateful you're the one that grew you know you're the one that's grown and you can you can pray for them and you can have compassion for them without participating anymore and it's it helps to just take a step back that's a huge thing i think in recovery from difficult emotions not that we ever recover from that in difficult situations is learning to kind of 
analyze this information as it comes in and take a step back and not get enmeshed with it. It's hard at first, right? But eventually, you know, we can get to the point where we're almost like an observer, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah. One of my favorite parts that I wrote is observation versus participation. Learning to step back and pause, take the pause, take in the room. We, we go into situations all the time and observe what's going on before we decide what we're going to do. Walk into a crowded room, find out where the, you know, the drinks are, the whatever else we do that. But learning to do that in your familiar situations, you know, read the room, you know, kind of thing. And it's uh, like I said, I, I, I pray for my brothers all the time. I love them dearly, um, but I'm not the same girl anymore. Yeah. Well, what advice would you have, Teresa, for someone still struggling with an addiction or maybe PTSD or struggles from childhood trauma and things like that, someone out there listening? Well, the first thing I would say is, is you're not alone yeah. and that there are systems that have been tried. And, you know, um, I, would, I would also, if you, if you don't have a relationship with God, I would get curious I would get curious about that because he is instrumental in the fact that any of this is possible for you and I to sit here and talk about that I'm not dead somewhere decades, yeah. decades and decades ago um, by my own carelessness and the carelessness of, of the people that I was around. But also that you're worth it. And I couldn't take that. I, that was one of the hardest things to believe is that I had value. Um, the messages I had received did not ever really support that idea that I had value. But you do have value. You absolutely do have value. And if you haven't experienced yet, you, it's out there for you. But it's going to take some courage. You're going to have to risk embarrassment. You're going to have to risk some failure. And I'm here to tell you, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Find yourself some people that are willing to speak life to you. you know, and the truth, learn to accept the truth. I have, I have friends that I call for different things. If I you know, need some support and some gentle compassion, then I, I, I call certain people. If I need somebody to flick me between the eyebrows and say, knock it off, you're doing it again, I have that person too. Choose wisely. You know, who, find out what your people are, are or providing for you, your friends are providing for you, and don't call the wrong one. What do you need? What are you looking for? Yeah. You know, sometimes I, I have my, my friend Leslie, who I've known longer than anybody on the planet that I'm not related to. She's so, she's so good. She'll say, oh, honey, wow, that must really be tough. Are you ready to hear your part now? <laughs> Yes. I love that. <laughs> you know, yeah, everybody needs a Leslie. Yeah. You know, find your uh, people. Yeah, I love it. And mm -hmm. and if you're not sure, go to a meeting, right? Yes. There's so much help. I 100%. Mean, and you got... know, let me, uh, you know, spoiler alert, they're all busted. Yeah. Church, full of flawed people. We yeah. just save you the shock. Yeah. You know, but they're trying and they're, they're there because they're imperfect and they're there, a lot of them are there because they found freedom and they want to share it with somebody else. Yeah, people want to help. There's so much help out there, you know. It's a natural progression to want to help people through what you've yeah. been delivered from. Natural progression, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I went to my to an AA meeting drunk because I didn't think anyone would notice. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's funny. It is funny. <laughs> I like dropping my water bottle, you know, and they took my keys. All this group of girls took me home and they tried to get, they tried to, um, take my booze. I'm like, don't know, you know, um, I mean, how funny is that? But, but they, they gathered around me and then I, I finally got the nerve to call one of them. And, and then I was like, I don't want to go to those meetings. I'm afraid I'm going to see my boss. And they're like, your boss is worried he's going to see you. And I was like, 
that's a really good point, you know? And then, and then pretty soon it becomes part of your story and who you are. And all that shame, ladies, guys, it all goes away. You just share it, you know? I am done with guilt, regret, and shame. Yeah. If I have regret, that means I need to go apologize to somebody. And I can do that too. Oh, well, Teresa, it's been wonderful. I had to probably like 12 more questions, but you know, I've already kept you an hour. So tell people uh, where they can find you, the book, if you have an email or how people can get in touch with you, things like that. So the name of the book is The Girl in Your Wallet. It's available on Amazon. And it is, um, it really just lays out what my life was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And also I itemize the process of healing, identifying and healing from so many things. So if you are struggling or you know somebody, a lot of times it's volunteers. Um, you know my, you know who my biggest customer has been is mental health professionals. It's, nice. it's very interesting. And I think because it's a glimpse behind the curtain. Uh, on my website, teresanickel.com, T-E-R-E-S-A-N-I-C-K-E-L-L.com. You can follow me there, see what's going on. And I am, and also reach me for any speaking opportunities that you will want to consider me for. Awesome. Teresa, thank you for your vulnerability, your writing, your speaking, your ministry, your book, for coming on and sharing. And I just really appreciate it. I know the listeners will too. So it's been, been fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. All right. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.